Welcome back to Paranormal. This is episode five, and this is our Halloween episode. Specifically, we're going to be talking about vampires and ghosts. Uh, we're going to try to squeeze them both in in this episode because, hey, those are the two things that people think of probably the most other than slasher movies when it comes to Halloween. So we were able to find uh, some good articles. There's actually a lot written uh, on both of these topics, and so we narrowed it to five articles. And real, real briefly, there were three vampire readings that we all did. One was by a guy named Michael Bell called Vampires and Death in New England, 1784 to 1892. And that was basically talking about uh, where some of the legend uh, about the undead came from. Uh, I don't want to telegraph too much of what the article's about, but it has something to do with uh, kind of primitive medical knowledge of the time. Then the second article was by two authors, Jaffe and Cataldo. It was entitled Clinical Vampirism, Blending Myth and Reality. And to be honest with you, that was a pretty disturbing article because <laughs> uh, it talked about you know people who like to suck blood and eat you know human flesh today. Um, so that, again, you know, we, we can jump into as, as we want. And the third article on vampires was Moreno Tiziani. And I believe that was a, 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 an author name that we got from Judd Burton, who we'll introduce here in a moment. And that was entitled Vampires and Vampirism, Pathological Roots of a Myth. Again, all three of these are peer-reviewed journal articles. And when it comes to the ghosts, uh, we read two articles. Uh, the first one was by a I, – I, I, I don't know if it was a guy or a girl because it's a name I've never seen before, Michaeline. Uh, Mar, M-A-H-E-R, and it was entitled Quantitative Investigation of the General Wayne Inn, which is a an inn in Pennsylvania that is, has long been known for being haunted. And then the second article was by a team of authors, Wiseman, Watts, Stevens, Greening, and O'Keefe, entitled An Investigation into Alleged Hauntings. And that was the British Journal of Psychology. That one focused on some, again, very long-standing uh, haunted places uh, overseas. So we're going to jump into the vampire topic first. And our, we have a special guest host uh, for this episode, Judd Burton. Judd, why don't you uh, introduce yourself real briefly, uh, give, give the listeners a little bit of your background and how you got interested in the topic of vampires, and then we'll just take it from there. Certainly. Uh, well, I'm Dr. Judd Burton, I'm a professor of history at South Texas College, and um, I'm primarily a, an early Christian Greco-Roman historian, but I, I will freely admit to being easily fascinated, which is why, I, in, addition, in addition to all that stuff, I, I study things like vampires. Uh, but I, I have a PhD in history, a master's degree in anthropology, which has sort of given me some tools to to use to study the topic of vampirism. Uh, and uh, un unfortunately, I, I've never, probably the closest I've come to teaching courses on vampirism has been online interaction. Um, I, I've been fascinated by the human past for as long as I can remember. Um, before I knew who Indiana Jones was, I, 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 I've 
I had the, the great uh, fortune of, of knowing a fellow by the name of Dr. George Knight. He would come to our, our church and talk about all his archaeological work. And so that was really my, my inspir- one of my big inspirations for going into the field of history and anthropology. But uh, I, I, I wear the, the sometimes confusing shoes of three different professions, historian, anthropologist, and archaeologist. I've had the fortune to dig at a number of sites on both sides of the globe, including in Israel and the state of Texas. Uh, as for vampires, I have to say that as part of my larger interest in world mythology, I've probably been interested in vampires as for as long as I've been able to you know, pick up an Encyclopedia Britannica and, and read about them, which is a pretty young age. But my, I, I suppose my more academic interest in the subject came when uh, I, I, one Christmas, it was the year that the, uh, the, the Coppola version of Dracula came out. Mm-hmm. And one, one Christmas, I asked my parents to get me nothing but books on vampires and Dracula, the historical Dracula. And they weren't mortified, and they <laughs> indulged me. And uh, one of the books that they, they got me was a, a, a piece called uh, The, the uh, Many Faces of Dracula uh, by uh, McNally and Florescu. And it was the first book that I'd ever read where I paid attention to the footnotes and I figured out, oh, this is how you do history. You, know, you learn the languages, you learn the, the methodologies, and you go at it. Uh, but I, I've maintained an interest in in the folkloric element of, of vampirism, the mythological element of vampirism, uh, and also um, some of its his, historical context as well, he, even though the historical Dracula has next to nothing to do with vampirism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the connection that Stoker made has been ensconced in the popular mind, and so I, I, I'm interested in that as well. But uh, in general, I, I, I'm interested in, in many things preternatural, and, and like yourself, Mike, looking at them through the lens of uh, the Bible. Well, good. With us, we have Natalina and Doug Van Dorn, Doug Overmeyer, and Trey Strickland. And I don't know about you guys. You can you know, respond to what Judd said, but I'll just throw this out. I have almost no interest in vampires. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, I, I've maybe read a couple of things before these articles uh, so I actually found them really interesting. Uh, other than again the the one on clinical vampirism, um, I it, it's like, look, if you're out eating human flesh and drinking blood, you don't. I don't need a clinical name for that. You're just a nutcase. <laughs> uh, you know that that's my clinical definition. You know for that, and, and I know Trey and I talked a little bit about that earlier today, and we're sort of on the same page. You know with that, but it, again, it, that's why I called it kind of disturbing, but. Other than that, I, I did find the articles uh, interesting. Uh, ghosts, I guess, garners a little bit more uh, of an interest with with me, but not so much vampires. What do you guys have any uh, specific, you know, past history of interest with vampires? Anybody? I do. <laughs> well, there you go. Go ahead. Um. Well, my 
background, my ethnicity is largely Hungarian, Eastern wow. European. And so from the time I was a little girl, I remember hearing stories about vampires. In fact, you know, a lot of kids are afraid of the monster under the bed or ghosts or whatever. But my biggest fear was vampires because they had these really real sounding stories <laughs> about them being a real Thing. And so much so that on my website, um, Extraordinary Intelligence, in 2009, I wrote an article um, about vampires and specifically who can claim the who, – who can make the biggest claim to the vampire myth? Would it be Romania or Hungary? And, or Hungary? and for some reason, I felt like I had to make the case that Hungary <laughs> – owned the vampire myth more so than Romania because modern day Transylvania of course is in Romania but there's this big um, debate actually because Wallachia you know Vlad Tepes Vlad the Impaler was um, a Wallachian and Wallachia is part of Moldavia which is like known as the borderlands and there's this big confusion as to whether Transylvania and Romania were all part of the larger Hungarian kingdom. And if that's the case, then you could probably say that Hungarians own the claim of, of, of you know, the sort of vampire myth as it pertains to the historical Dracula figure. And then, of course, you can add in um, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, who was Hungarian as well, and and you know infamously kidnapped people and bathed and killed them and bathed in their blood. And so, anyway, I wrote this big article about it in two thousand nine, and to this day, it is the most visited um, article on my website. And I don't even really write about that kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> but it was this huge point of fascination for me. Vampires have always kind of just been, I don't know, something I was always kind of scared of, and then later fascinated just by the history of it. So um, I do have a personal interest in it, but I haven't visited it in a long time. So this was kind of interesting. Hmm. Well, I don't have a dog in the fight, so okay, I'll I'll vote for Hungary. You know, thank you. <laughs> if who you ever, <laughs> who knew that vampires could affect geopolitics so much? It's true. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know. I sort of took it on as like a lighthearted thing when I was writing it, but the comment section on that article is vicious. <laughs> Everybody wants to claim that that uh, either. Romanian or Hungarian uh, history owns Dracula. It's it's fascinating. Hmm. How about uh, either of the Dougs or Trey? Well, this I is kinda, go, go ahead, go ahead, DVD. Sure, no, no, no problem. Yeah, I kind of have a roundabout interest in it. I think uh, I, I I could claim because I'm half Swedish that I have this interest in giants because they're mythology, but that's probably not really very true. Um, but researching my book on giants, uh, coming across Judd's book and interview with the giant and then seeing that he's got all this stuff on vampires related to it, uh, kind of piqued my interest several years ago. So I'm, I'm excited to hear Judd kind of talk about the relationship between vampires and the giants in the Bible. Yeah, I've always just kind of enjoyed the, the atmosphere of those Vincent Price movies, you know, and the, in, even farther back, of course, Bela Lugosi. I don't know what it is, if it's just because 
it, it just like a clash of medieval versus modern or just all the archetypes that go into a classic vampire uh, movie or, or show and Buffy the Vampire Slayer is our favorite. My wife and I, our favorite show when we were first married and, you know, and just, just all the, just all the allegories they use, they use the vampire ideas to, to uh, sort of illustrate sort of angst of living in modern society. And I just, I've always enjoyed it. But then I was sort of fascinated also when I came across Interview with the Giant. Um, and I, I suppose we'll get into that a little bit. Just, and I, so I, I used, I, I use the information um, about the giants and, and uh, vampires, the potential origin of that, when I was a youth pastor, just to sort of draw teenagers in to um, some of the supernat- the more supernatural elements of the Bible that you know a lot of churches don't like to discuss or or ignore. I think I just thought it was fascinating, and it just really riveted. In fact, I had Derek Gilbert uh, come and speak. Uh, to my youth group, uh, specifically about vampires and uh, the Book of Enoch, and um, it, it, that was just. And I had about half the kids were just completely riveted because they were all into the Twilight series several years ago. They were all in the Twilight stuff. Uh, other half were, were bored to tears, but that's okay. You know, uh, it was just a, a neat avenue, and really, it's just it's so pervasive that imagery and the fact that there's to get to the roots of it. I think is just really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, I mean, my interest stops at the fiction part of just movies and whatnot. I've never really dove into the history of it or whatnot. Um, so I'm interested to hear kind of Judd's take on the Giants. Uh, uh, that's new to me. Uh, I just recently discovered Judd's material, and it turns out me and Judd pretty much grew up next door to each other almost. Just so, down the road. Just that's down right. the road, yeah. So we're basically family friends. And, uh, so I'm interested to hear his take on the vampires and giants personally. Well, we, we can go a couple different directions here. I, I, I think there's two main trajectories for our discussion um, in this episode. One is, again, the myth. And, and when I say the myth, I mean sort of the modern uh, mythology that you all have alluded to. And then, again, we might want to touch on, you know, people who would claim to be vampires today or people who'd be classified as vampires or cases of vampirism, you know, the clinical stuff. And that, that trajectory really deals with the papers we read. And then there's this second trajectory about possible ancient connections. And I think we're going to, we're going to begin with that because we do have Judd here. Uh, I, I have never seen uh, any treatment or speculation on you know, sort of bridging this gap of, okay, how do we get from certain demonic figures of greater antiquity? And and a, a few of the articles, I think one of the articles by, I think it was the one by Tiziani actually made some reference to, uh, you know, ancient demons or something like that. But uh, again, it was, it was a little spotty on, on that person's, you know, use of evidence. Somebody brought up Lilith, for example, which I don't think is a is a good example. I think Lilith is actually a better example of the the quote unquote old hag, uh, or even sleep paralysis kind of thing going on. But at any way, at any rate, some people will reference demonic figures that show up in very ancient texts and associate that with vampires, and then you go all the way over to, you know, really early modern history. Um, and so what, 
there's this big gulf in between. So I'd, I'd be interested in hearing Judd's take on that. And then also, again, this connection to the Giants. I've not seen that anywhere other than in what Judd does. And I, I haven't read Interview with a Vampire, but I've, I've sat in on a, a couple of Judd's lectures at, at the old uh, one of the old Future Congress events where he went through the material. So, again, I, I know the basics of it, but why don't we start there? Judd, if you can give us a quick, um, you know, sort of your take on how we – can talk about vampires, not in terms of, of modern mythology per se, because we'll get to that. And that's really where our readings focused on. But uh, again, some of these other connections that you really, you know, are less apparent, you know, in, in the literature, let's just start there. Well, sure. Uh, you know, I, I think in, in terms of, of putting vampires into an, an ancient context, it's almost a given that you have to look at it anthropologically. You have to you have to understand something of the culture that vampires emerge in because there are going to be certain peculiarities that each culture is going to put on it. And certainly, I, I, you, I'm, I would argue that there is also there's a vampire sort of archetype, and otherwise it wouldn't you know people wouldn't write about it all over the globe. Um, but I think in, in terms of uh, getting at the evidence of vamp- of the at least the idea of vampirism in the ancient world, you're reliant on uh, you know archaeology and linguistics to get at that. Um, and some of the more interesting examples uh, come from you know the, the very cradle of civilization. The, there's a whole panoply of these sort of underling creatures uh, that 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 are basically beholden uh, to sustaining themselves by uh, the, the either the taking in of blood or the taking in of life force, some strange combination of the two. Well, let's pick an example. I mean, I, you can continue with what you're saying, but al- along the way, it might be helpful to pick a you know a specific example. Uh, you mean from uh, yeah, like like a like a, a an entity that, like you said, has to sustain itself, you know, with blood, or just the general concept of of being undead, and then having some connection to uh, you know some of the if if there are you know some of the 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 sort of motifs associated with vampires, you know you. The, the darkness, the night, you know, avoiding the sun again, the, the whole, not, not even just taking in blood, but sort of sucking the life force out of something. I mean, you, you know, something broad like that. I mean, what can you think of a, a good example, or uh, you could go into, when I heard your lecture, one of the things was, um, you know, you, you wondered about, is there a connection between this thing that we now know as a vampire or the, this vampire talk in, in different cultures and the, the cannibalistic references like to the giants in the book of Enoch, something like that. So if you can, if you can track some of the ideas along, you know, an example, uh, whether it's going to be familiar to our audience or not, um, I think it might be helpful. Sure. Uh, well, the um, uh, one that pops to mind uh, in uh, Mesopotamia is the Lamashtu, which, um, Mike, you may have run across in some of your uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, I, I, gosh, I, I forget how many West Asian languages you you're capable of deciphering, but you may have run across some of that in your your Mesopotamian studies. Uh, but she was a kind of uh, um, night demon goddess um, who was famous for uh, uh, stealing into people's rooms at night and uh, emptying them of blood and then making off. Uh, and this seems to be, uh, you know, the, the archetype for uh, a lot of these kinds of creatures uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, it's now, as far as the, the, the antediluvian world goes and the giants, um, it's, a, it's a little bit different of a story. Uh, probably a lot, of, a lot of the listeners are going to be familiar with the, um, the apocryphal literature like Enoch or, or Jasher or Jubilees or whatever, and the account of the, the, the Watchers and the Giants. Uh, what's interesting to me, and I, I, I tried to flesh this out uh, in not to use a pun, uh, in my book, <laughs> Interview with the Giant, where I, I, I wrote a chapter called uh, uh, Vampire Zero, and uh, where I'm basically looking at a, a kind of historical epidemiology, tracking it back to its source. And I looked at the basically the culture, the traits. Uh, of the not only the antediluvian giants but the, the the giants after the flood and what i what you find is that they're bloodthirsty to the point of overwhelming all the resources that humanity had and uh, not only consume beginning to consume others when they run out of food but also uh, consuming the blood of humans um, the, the, to my mind, the, this is the archetypal behavior of, of a vampire. Um, and in fact, later in the narrative, when Enoch is giving a judgment or pronouncing the judgment given to him by God on the giants, uh, he, he says something, to, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the effect that uh, after the, 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 you're destroyed in the flood, your spirits will wander the earth forever, looking to basically hamper humanity and you'll be forever hungry and never satiated. So there's this unending thirst, which also seems to be part of uh, the vampire mythos, the vampire archetype. And so to my mind, it's very clear that there is this connection uh, that not only goes back to antiquity and, and very likely into prehistory, but also uh, you've got this connection with the older um, biblical tradition as well. Yeah, for for listeners, the uh, the Lamash too uh, that Judd referred to as, you know, in broad terms, a, a female demon in um, Mesopotamian. Again, speaking broadly, Mesopotamian material who was sort of infamous or get you know for attacking pregnant women and newborn children. Basically, Lamash too was was sort of associated with a lot of. Uh, stillbirths, you know, that sort of thing. But Lamashtu is also described as having, you know, claws and, you know, like bird-like talons and hands stained apparently with blood. And so there's, there's a bit of a a violent aspect to it Mm -hmm. as well. You know, lion's head and wings and and all that sort of thing. Lalith is like a subset uh, of, of the Lamashtu type demon. And, and this, 
that particular behavior, the, the violent behavior, uh, was more attributed to Lilith in post-biblical Jewish tradition. If you're going back to Lilith specifically, uh, she was classified as a night uh, spirit or night demon that would sort of suck the breath uh, out of newborns, out of out of children. It, it, the, the term actually comes from a Sumerian term that refers to, you know, wind at night and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's dark and the wind's blowing and you hear noises and you wake up the next morning and your kid's dead. You know, it, you know again, this, like what we call sudden infant death syndrome. Well, that would have been attributed to uh, Lilith specifically in, in uh, sort of the biblical or, you know, pre-biblical era. But the Lamash too was something even more sinister um, when, it, when it comes to that uh, sort of thing. Anybody else want to want to want to jump in here? Does is, is anybody anybody have any questions about that, or want to sort of poke Judd a little bit and, and get him to you know elaborate a little bit? No, there's one uh, there's one interesting reference that I found in uh, Proverbs thirty fifteen. If you look in the dictionary of deities and demons. In the Bible, they have a reference for a vampire, and it's found in that verse, and it's called this, it's called the Aluka. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you pronounce it. And um, it's some sort of a reference, it seems, to an ancient Near Eastern blood-sucking leech. And what I found was interesting is that the Septuagint takes the, it's kind of that passage, there's like two or three verses there, and it uses this really strange language in the next verse of Hades and Tataras, and Gaia, and it's like this, it's like really strange supernatural God sort of stuff. So <laughs> I've wondered, I've wondered about that passage and, and uh, just what in the world's going on in that text, but it does seem to be that, you know, it's demonic. And that's, that's really, that, to me, that's the interesting thing that I wanted to, I wanted to pursue with Judd a little bit is that if we can say that there's any kind of a relationship with the giants, even if it's archetypal or something like that, what's fascinating to me is that you've got Lilith and this Aluka that are kind of demonic sort of things. And in the ancient world, the church fathers, uh, you know, they're understanding that the giants are kind of the beings that are responsible for the existence of demons. Um, that's a That's a connection to me that, is weird. And, you know, you, you read this, the, the one article that we read on the, you know, the, uh, working out of vampirism in our day, that's, that was so disturbing. Um, you know, they're looking at it from a psychology point of view and I'm looking at it as a Christian and through the lens of, you know, you know these references in the old Testament and giants and demons to demonic manifestations. So any thoughts on that, Judd? Can I piggyback on that before Dr. Burton chimes in? Um, I just want to read this um, uh, one section. It was It's one verse before the one you cited, um, Proverbs 30, 14. Just for the listeners, I think they'll find this interesting. Mm, yeah, it says, right. there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. So it's all part of that same passage, but that one's screams vampire <laughs> yeah that's very interesting yeah definitely well i i you know i i'm looking at this also as a christian I, i'm also looking at it as a scholar and by the way i don't necessarily think that that has to be mutually exclusive um but uh, very clearly there's 
there's a demonic connection. Any, anyone with with a sound grasp on, um, you know, uh, ha, that has a basic biblical knowledge can pick this stuff out and see, yeah, that there's very cl- clearly something demonic about it. And I, I think that I think that the the early church fathers recognize that. I think that's why they, that so much of their literature is just rife. Uh, probably more so with uh, references to the giants, but they, they under, I, I think they, they understood what we're talking about here, that, that there was a, there was a connection. There is a direct connection uh, between uh, the various lines of giants and, uh, you know, what pe- later people's antique, late antique, medieval, early modern and modern would classify as vampires. This is uh, uh, Dugo. What 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 do you think? To, to kind of go back, giants came from the the offspring of the Watchers and humans. What is it about the, the Watchers that their offspring became the archetype for vampires? I mean, if if Genesis six two is it's not not the number two. If Genesis if Genesis six is sort of a a reframing of sort of the Babylonian um, worldview. What is, what are we supposed to take from like, what makes a I guess what makes a watcher produce something so horrific? Well, that is an interesting question and I'm not sure that I can give you all of the details. (laughs) I don't know if we have enough time to even answer that question. I, um, I, I would say that, that it, it, uh, well, in the revised edition of Interview with a Giant, I added a chapter on witchcraft, and um, you know the the Jews of the Old Testament linked, or, or I should say, the the law that they received from Yahweh uh, linked witchcraft with rebellion. Well, what do you have with the Watchers? It's it's the chief of all rebellions, and they end up teaching a kind of combination of of sciences and and the occult to to early humans and so that you know to my mind that rebellion is that's part of the reason that that verse reads witchcraft is as the sin of rebellion uh and so this this rebellion against god uh you know corrupting creation trying to create something outside of, of god's scope of creation uh, ending up making something that's completely anathema to God's creation. Uh, you know, vampires, or vampirism, in many ways, is a, a complete reversal mockery of Christianity, of the, the the sacrifice that Christ made. And I think you take that in, in terms of what we're talking about tonight, the, the, the vampire, I think you take that all the way back to the antediluvian world, with the rebellion of the Watchers and their progeny, the Giants. Just to sort of piggyback on that that thought that that vampirism is sort of the Antichrist, uh, not the Antichrist, but it's sort of the opposite of Jesus because Jesus shed his blood so his followers could have eternal life, but vampires shed the blood of their followers so they can have eternal life, I think. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes, amongst other things, yes. So how would you, again, to use your pun against you, Judd, how would you flesh out? Here we go. <laughs> I mean, because you, you can, if we, if you think about vampire mythology abstractly, okay, you know, what, 
what's going on here? Well, there, there's this, you know, you, I mean, you could, we could read, we, we, we could use this to really even transition to the articles too, uh, if, if we want, but a number of them pointed out how there were certain um, experiences with the dead that were parsed again in non-scientific mythological terms. For instance, like the presence of what appeared to be fresh blood in a in the heart of a corpse. You know, some of the articles go into why you know why that again isn't surprising. And if you were a person that didn't know this or that, and you encountered you know you, you dug up a corpse or you found one that had been dead for a while, and you still see this, well, the perception is that this this corpse must still have life because blood, of course, was you know one of the things that you know, was, was critical, you know, crucial to life and actually gave life. And even the biblical idea of the life of the flesh is in the blood and, and all that. So you, you could look at this abstractly and you could look back at something like the giants and say, okay, you know, there's this passage in Enoch about the spirits of the watchers, you know, are going to be, you know, classified as demons. And then they seek embodiment. That's kind of the most obvious way to, to apparently, you know, fulfill this desire not for not to keep living because they're they're spirits that are actually still alive and living, but this this notion of fleshly embodiment. So you you could kind of see where you could get the idea of a of a demonic spirit being uh, doing something to not just a living human like possession, but to a corpse to animate it, make it one of them so to speak, um, and or, or again, some symbiotic relationship with the corpse that could, again, to use another pun, feed into a, a, you know, the vampire mythology. I mean, you could see how, how someone could, you know, go from one thought to another and then to another. And then, you know, as things get accrued to the basic idea that these, these you know, evil, sinister spirit beings are seeking to have life among the living uh, in terms of either a, a possession or a corpse animation or a corpse embodiment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, gradually as things go on more and more accrue, more and more ideas accrue to the basic thought because, you know, right there you have reanimation and you have blood as, as sort of the core ideas, you know, of you know, kind of, kind of the beginning point uh, of, of how we might think abstractly or how an ancient person, you know, might've, might've thought abstractly. And, and, and again, even you can hook it into, you know, a, a few sort of, you know, people could say they're peripheral, but they, they still are textual references that contain the core ideas. I don't know what you, what you think about that. Have you ever tried to construct sort of a typology, um, a profile, you know, of kind of the earliest ideas and then moving forward? Uh, not necessarily in antiquity, but I, as you were talking, the, the, actually the work that came to my mind was a book called the science of vampires, uh, by Kathleen Ramsland. And, and she, she deals with the kind of, um, forensics and the physics that, you know, the, the, the actual, um, you know, kind of, uh, the biomechanics and the, the body chemistry that would have to go into, um, 
uh, you know, the, the transformation it, itself. And there have been a number of interesting, if not eccentric figures who, who, who have, I think, contributed to what, what you're getting at here, kind of typology or framework for, for understanding this. Another one is, is Sean Manchester, and he is uh, often associated with, with the Highgate vampire case. But he, I heard an interview with him one time, and he, he posited that vampires operate in, in because everything else they do is, is opposite and, and in contrast to, to God's will, that they operate in a kind of anti-time, what he called anti-time, and the, the physics of this world somehow are, are manipulated to create just what you said, to, to use the blood— to, um, to to use both living and dead matter to affect this ghastly purpose that we've you know, variously called vampires or what in whatever language whatever appellation you want to get it we we all understand what's meant by the concept um, and so while I haven't necessarily done a kind of ancient typology uh, there's certainly room to do that work and as I said there's there's some interesting contributions to this discussion that have happened, I would say, over the last 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. I personally would, um, to me, there's a, there's a difference between what, how can I say this? Um, I mean, I take a verse like, you know, the, the, the scriptural statements that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Mm -hmm. I don't take a, a mystical view of that. I think the point of that is that, hey, if you don't have blood, you're dead. Okay. Uh, you know, you're going to die. You, you got to have it. It's, it's this, it's this thing that is in your body. And if you cut yourself, it leaks out. And if enough leaks out, you're going to die. So that, that again, they, they don't have a, they don't have a medical or, you know, forensic sense of what, what this, what blood actually does. You know, like we could, you know, you can find lectures on that, you know, and, you know, just listen for hours, you know, on that sort of thing. I think they're, they're just more the language of experience. If you lose enough of this, you are going to die. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, it gives you life. But that, that's a, a bit different than talking about a, a, a spirit being, a demonic entity, uh, or people who believe that they are either going to be empowered by a demonic entity or give themselves over to one. And that involves the use of blood. Uh, in other words, the, the need for it, uh, wh whether, you know, we can say that, oh, that's clinically this or that. And, you know, the physics and the biochemistry works this way, that way. That's incidental, you know, to, to people who are, who are doing that. And also, you know, if, if a demonic entity actually has a reason to, in, you know, to prod people in that direction. I don't, I don't think they need a science lesson there, you know, to do that. But nevertheless, that, that it's still interesting because you're, you're going to have, you're going to have people who think about that, mm -hmm. whether they would use our terms or not. And they're going to develop their own um, approach to it, their own rational, you know, rationale for why they're doing what they're doing with blood and, and, and whatnot. So I, I think that certainly has, significant anthropological, you know, interest and, and something to contribute, you know, to the discussion. But again, I, I think for, for our listeners, you know, what we're talking about here is again, these ideas that you would associate with vampires, the, the, the core ideas, you know, the undead, the blood, you know, the, the again, this, this has this sort of magical or, 
you know, supernatural, preternatural quality to it. Again, what the, the, the question isn't whether that's scientifically coherent or not. The question is lots of people believe this and it's, it's very old. These core ideas are very old and you can trace some of them into the literature that we would associate with the biblical period and biblical people. Uh, you, you can get there. And when you get there, you find out it does have some connection to the demonic world, uh, to the underworld, the sinister underworld. And I think that what's really telling for me anyway is what you brought up, a couple of you brought up, about how this does invert and pervert specific points of Christian theology. I, I, I don't think that just happens by accident. No. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big believer in coincidences like that. Right. I think there, there's a reason, there's an intelligence behind that to guide the thinking of the masses and so on and so forth, or, or at least, again, to, to mess with uh, certain ideas, you know, that are that are sort of core, you know, to the to the biblical thinking on on the, you know, any any of the points that are relevant. Uh, I, have, I have a kind of a related ahead. question to that. So the gods of the nations, outside of Israel, outside of Yahweh, some of them or many of them required blood sacrifices from time to time, like in the Valley of Wailing. For instance, I mean, would we consider like human blood, not just animal blood, but some occasionally, you know, and then, of course, when they came over to the New World, the Aztecs would sacrifice tens of thousands of people. Um, and so would we describe those gods as vampiric? I mean, there's, there's that same motif going on. Um, these demonic entities are requiring human blood uh, for their own whatever. I mean, I don't know what they get out of it. I would say to a degree, especially when you look at uh – you know, you mentioned. First of all, I would say that that again, the the sacrality of blood and in, in ritual again is something that you can chart over space and time all over the globe. And you mentioned the New World civilizations. Uh, the Spanish were, uh, you know, horrified at uh, the the numbers that the Aztecs would would sacrifice. But a, a case can be made that the Maya were even more bloodthirsty their their god especially Tlaloc the rain god and um uh Kukulkan were immensely bloodthirsty they they there was something in their theology that made them believe and I would argue that it's that it was demonically revealed but they nonetheless believed that their their gods demanded from them copious amounts of human blood and so, yeah, there, there there seems to be something very clearly, not only demonic but vampiric, uh, about those deities. Yeah, I, I would think you know, for for my part, I think it would matter what's done with the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in in, in biblical sacrificial. You know, context the blood. You know, of course, you know you were if you were if 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 you were talking about the sacrifice where you were going to have a a a communal meal, you know, with the Lord. Okay. You were not allowed to consume blood. The blood was used right. to, exactly. to, to purge inanimate objects, you know, like, you know, vessels and, and the, you know, the altar and, you know, the tabernacle itself, you know, day of atonement, the Holy of Holies and, and whatnot. It, it wasn't a thing that you would, you know, consume along with, with God, you know, so that, you know, whether, whether, 
that much care was taken in other contexts in terms of what is actually done with the blood, I think for me is a contributing factor to how much, um, you know, blood thirstiness, you know, the vampiric qualities we can attribute, you know, to some of these, you know, the, the civilizations again, what, what did they conceive that the deity did with it? You know, I mean, you know, what, in other words, what, what's the logic behind it? And, and you know, that's different cultures are going to answer that question in different ways. Um, yeah, so that would that would matter for me as well. But let's let's get into the articles a little bit. What what did you all think, you know, of the articles? Again, I've I've already said I thought a number of them were really interesting, um, especially the connection with again some of this, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of primitive medical uh, knowledge that certain features of a corpse, you know, were. Um, were parsed in certain ways by people and that how that really, you know, kind of it reinforced this thinking about the undead. I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, I had not you know, come across that before, but I don't want to get too far into it. I'd like to get your responses, you know, to, to some of what you read, including the disturbing one, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the clinical one, if we want to want to jump into that. But I, I thought it was interesting but, how they, how sort of thoughts of vampires cropped up where there was instances of uh, plagues, maybe the plague going back. We didn't read any articles about that time period, but, mm-hmm. and, but just like in tuberculosis, when something would pop up and wipe out a, a couple, you know, a bunch of people in, a, in an area, the thought was, well, there must be something going on. Supernatural it must be vamp- vampiric activity. And then one of the solutions was to burn the body and then consume the ashes. An idea probably went back to Hungary, I would think. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? No, sorry, that was a bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> She'll take the abuse. <laughs> But still, I don't know where that comes from. Like, okay, we think this, we think our loved one who passed away is coming back and consuming blood of, of our family members. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig the body up. If there's blood in the, in the mouth or in the heart, then we're going to burn the body and then we're going to consume the ashes and then we'll be safe. That's, that's just odd to me. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, it is. Go ahead, mm-hmm. Lena. Well, one of the biggest things that I took away, especially from the Bell article, is because it kind of coincides with something that I'm focusing on a lot happening now in social media. Um, This is a weird connection, but so one of the big things that's mentioned in this article is that, you know, when we think of um, early New England, we think primarily of like the Puritans and, you know, they were they definitely had some superstitious types of beliefs but it was sort of really embedded in their orthodoxy of their puritan sort of calvinistic um beliefs but where the vampire stuff seemed to be cropping up was more in it's it's explained as like the unchurched areas i would think of it as kind of maybe like the country it's like on the outskirts of the primary settlements and these people because they were not particularly affiliated with any sort of orthodoxy but they were still very infused with like this protestant mindset they injected so much of their own superstition into 
their spiritual philosophies. And that's where you're seeing a lot of this vampire stuff, digging up the dead because they were to blame for tuberculosis or whatever was happening at the time. The reason I make that connection is because we're seeing so we, I just feel like we have a really real world example right now on social media of kind of what happens and I'm not trying to make this into a, whether you should go to church or not discussion, but more of like kind of what happens with superstitions or conspiracy mm-hmm. theories or whatever, when you have absolutely no authority, you don't have any sort of connection to orthodoxy, you, whether it, you don't have any authority as whether it's a pastor or even someone like Dr. Heiser, who has the education and the resources to kind of guide you through what, what is really being said in scripture. And I think that just made such a huge connection to me because when you have no particular guidance and you are sort of like a lone wolf, whether you're on the outskirts of Puritan society or whether you're just someone who sits on Facebook all day and watches YouTube all day, you can come up with these really wild ideas that seem so true because you don't have any sort of guidance or someone to sort of pull you back in and say, okay, this is probably not actually what (laughs) that means, or this is probably not actually what's happenings. I think of it kind of like what happens in like the Appalachia where there's Christian communities and sort of like the snake bite Pentecostal communities in the mountains, but they have like sort of this core of Christianity, but then there's so much superstition that embeds into it because of the isolation. Mm -hmm. I just found that whole thing so fascinating. Yeah. You know, for yeah, readers, said, go ahead. You know, the article is Vampires and Death in New England, and it said 85 to 90% of white New Englanders were unchurched. Yeah, that was but, amazing. I, I agree. I was we, ha- we had this idea, at least I do, this sort of mythology that the early American settlers were, well, this was during the 18th and 19th century, so the early, that they, you know, that everybody was a Christian, and that just wasn't the case. Yeah, we think of the Puritans, and it kind of just ends there. Thank you, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but th- th- you're you're right. I mean, the, the the Bell article does point out how folk religion mm-hmm. was a real factor, and and then the the I mean, Bell does this too. But the Tiziani article just for our listeners uh, to you know sort of bridge the gap here in our own discussion. I'll, I'll, let me just read you a, a paragraph or two here. The Tiziani article talks about how the the lack of sort of knowing and we still have this problem but but knowing when a person's dead like when you're really dead uh that being a sort of an open question can along with things that people observed with dead bodies whether again they they, something they came across or whether a body was exhumed or whatever things like um blood again still being present like liquid blood still being present in the heart of a corpse uh blood coming from the mouth or nose uh he lists as another characteristic uh skin dehydration nails and hair look like they were still growing because the blood you know will will gather at the appendages and so it looks like the the, per, the, the corpse isn't really dead it's not completely dead uh, the fact that corpses can shift their position because of cadaverous spasms 
uh, if rigor mortis is still taking place, just all those sorts of things that, that medically people have a forensic, you know, pathologist would have an explanation for all of these in a clinical context. But for someone, you know, a couple hundred years ago, when someone got consumption now known as tuberculosis, and this was the, the folk belief that they're somehow getting blood or life force drained from them. And if they had a, a person in the family who had recently died, they'd go dig that person up. And if they found these symptoms, the assumption was that that person, the, the, the one in the grave, really wasn't dead, not completely dead yet. And so that, that contributed to this whole uh, you know, vampire mythology. And then they would do various things to the corpse to, especially like eliminating the heart, uh, they would remove, you know, parts of the body and burn them, you know, to make them go away and get, you know, sort of to eliminate either the need or the the holding pattern for blood. Again, it, it's not it's not logical to our mind because you know we're we live in a, a medical, you know, clinically advanced, you know, sort of context. But all of these things became factors that blended with the folk religion and really reinforced the folk religion. Uh, that that these people, you know, sort of had brought along with them. You know, I, I thought that was really, uh, really fascinating. I again, I had not come across that because vampires really aren't uh, my thing. But it it made a lot of sense on its own terms. You know, like, well, how do we know that that person's really dead? I mean, and again, we still struggle with that today because of our technology, uh, with the whole brain death thing, and how do you even define that? And uh, to the point where some physicians are advocating, go back to the old definition. Uh, you're dead when the heart and lungs cease to function and, you know, the, the body is – the heart isn't pumping blood. You know, and you let people – you let the person, the, the body putrefy a little bit and then that's when you determine death, you know, uh, as opposed to what we're doing now with, with brain death. But th this was a struggle back then and – Fortunately or unfortunately, I guess would be a better way to say it, it, it became part of reinforcing, again, some of these ideas specifically about vampirism. I thought it was interesting that this vampirism concern didn't really fade until the late 19th century in, yeah. in the U.S. And, it, and mainly because of people started embalming. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, in the science too, you know, that people became aware of germ theory, but you know, they started embalming people. So there was for sure that person was dead. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 It was interesting how embalming helped, uh, solidify that, that question. And that they would, they would actually go to the city council or the village council and get permission to exhume a body so they could destroy the body because they thought mm -hmm. vampirism was at work and this in the you know the little city council would vote and mm -hmm. they approved it that, again that, i just think of some of those those vampire movies you know with uh, that take place in that that time period where people are trying to parse the occult with sort of science mm -hmm. and and going back and forth and, and bell talked about that that the those people who are outside the puritan communities they would mingle in astrology and the Bible. And in going back to Nat's earlier point, that's what people do today. You know, they'll, they'll draw on astrologers and they'll draw from the Bible, just whatever it is that tries to make yes. them feel better. Mm -hmm. And that's not, if I could interject and that's not really anything necessarily new, but because going back to the early modern period in Europe, 
uh, you know, even the Catholic Church sanctioned, uh, you know, in some cases, alchemy and astrology, and in some cities to kind of to to try and thwart uh, what they thought was a, a cause of uh, uh, violence in cities, they sanctioned prostitution as well. So there were, you know, there were all kinds of of uh, ne'er do well activities, shall we say, um, you know, both civically and theologically, that just sort of are, you know, we think maybe have been have been suppressed in a, in a, a kind of golden age past, but in fact, the opposite is the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these ideas kind of, you know, they they find a vehicle for preservation, uh, I, I suppose, in a, in a medium like that. Another thing that occurred to me is that toward toward the end of this period, our ideas about germ theory are beginning to coalesce as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the big, uh, well, I, you know, I'm just thinking about the introduction of, of antiseptics, you know, in field hospitals during the, the civil, you know, era after the civil war, I should say a huge, huge difference. And it re- revolutionizes, you know, our, our concept of, uh, well, about really about bifurcating the spiritual and the physical in terms of, of disease. We we should uh, transition to the ghost, you know, topic. But to to close the vampire thing, I mean, as I read this, and, and again, having you know been exposed to you know some of Judd's work on on the you know the the greater antiquity elements again the the archetype, I guess you know we could say that uh, loosely anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think of when I think of vampires, I think th- this is just mythology. This is just pure mythology. But we have again, you know, in, in a supernaturalistic worldview, there is something to this in terms of, um, you know, a, a a demonic activity that has a few of these core elements in them, and so. When people act out on that, or when you know you have cases where, hey, this might be uh, a, a manifestation of something you know supernatural, that we we shouldn't be dismissive of that. But in terms of, we have this guy who can transform into a bat and doesn't reflect in mirrors and all that kind of stuff. All of those things are are modern accruals, uh, you know, to core ideas that reflect you know certain something that might make sense in in, in its own context. Again, given given the state of knowledge, but you know it, it's not something at, at least for me that I feel I, I need to lend any any further credence to at least some of those elements. I don't know how the rest of you, well, you know, before, feel about that. Before we transition to the haunted sure. house, I, I just want to mention we kept, we've mentioned the um, the really disturbing article, clinical vampirism, mm-hmm. but something that jumped out at me and in, in this. It talks about the case of a modern vampire, and we're not. Gonna, I don't want to go into the details because it's really gross. But uh, where this this guy from a seemingly normal middle class American family just ended up doing really disturbing vampiric things, and he and it was just interesting to me. And this is not an archetype, but it's interesting to me that this one little. I'll just read from the article. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it said uh, he believed that his his mom. Uh, belonged to a witchcraft club when in fact she taught astrology on the side mm-hmm. and during the and so this mom had uh, occult seances in the house and he claimed he had blood drawn from him well what just jumped out at me is 
don't have seances in your house and, and don't <laughs> join the occult, okay? Because that can, that can just have bad influences on your kids. In this case, this is an extreme case, um, very extreme case. But it's just it just jumped out at me. That obviously, this author did not have a supernatural worldview, did not draw a distinction between sort of practicing witchcraft and having seances in your house. Um, well, it's, but, it's, a good, it's a good point because the people doing the seances, I'm sure they're not thinking – Oh, if we do enough of these, Johnny will grow up to be a vampire. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're not thinking about the if this is the, an unintended consequence and a, and a really bad one, mm-hmm. you know, of what they were doing. You know, there's one other thing I thought with the clinical vampires, and it's kind of along the same lines. And I think we all would be in agreement that that was a really disturbing article. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was that's kind of the way it's supposed to be. I mean, vampires mm-hmm. are not. Uh, good creatures they're horrible and so you read about the modern day vampire guy and he's just a you know makes you sick to your stomach and what i thought was so he he starts off the article comparing that to the early kind of dracula bram stoker sort of thing where dracula is clearly a bad guy and this is where i wish brian was here because i think he would have a lot to say about this um but with like Buffy and um, Twilight and these kinds of things, it's almost like the vampire myth. It's it's been he would he would say he would use the word subversion. They've taken something that's horrible and they're using it almost against what it really is. Mm-hmm. It, so the people, you know, they think vampires are like this cool thing now. They're exciting. They're something you want to partake in and well, uh, they play baseball. Yeah. Uh, I just think that's a. I I hate the Twilight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No kidding. I I just throw that in. My wife just. She she has had this long standing fascination, you know, with with vampires, you know. And so, like, she's. You know, she hates when I make fun of the movie, but I I just had to throw that in to make it part of the eternal (laughs) record. (laughs) Well, that, that is an interesting topic and it's actually one that I've discussed with Derek Gilbert on, on a number of occasions of how the how the modern image of the vampire is the, the popular image of the vampire that we have in literature and, and media and things such as the uh, uh, Twilight where the vampire is cool the vampire is uh, you know popular he's the guy you want to be the guy you want to be around so the image has sort of been twisted around to, you know, GQ model. Uh, it, it, it's sort of taking the the uh, the European noble suave nobleman to the to the extreme, and we've got the the American version of it now. But in actuality, the vampire is this loathsome demonic uh, entity that that takes and takes and takes and abuses and abuses and abuses. And it's just been twisted in popular literature. And I, I think, in my mind, the breaking point to that at the, in, in popular literature was probably Anne Rice. But even with, with Anne Rice's vampires, there was this sense of self-loathing that, that uh, you know, that their state was not natural. It wasn't how it was supposed to be. They couldn't control it, but they they ended up hating it in the end. That is true because 
it is interesting to think about how vampires have been romanticized in literature throughout the ages. I mean, it goes all the way back to Bram Stoker, who, even though he based it on Vlad Tepes, you know, the Impaler, there was still sort of this romantic idea of who Dracula was and he was seductive and he was a gentleman and this type of thing. And then it kind of goes forward into the Anne Rice books where you're right, there was this sort of melancholy about it, but also like Lestat was a rock star, you know, and and stuff like that. And so he was kind of really attractive and romantic. And then you go forward into the twilight where the, where the vampires are the heroes and they don't, you know, they sparkle in the sun. (laughs) They're just really attractive and alluring and actually desirable. It seems like as time goes on, the myth continues to romanticize them even more. I hadn't even thought about that, but it's kind of an evolution of, of how awesome vampires are. That's really interesting. For the record, I, I I hate the glittery aspect of the twilight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anybody want to speculate on what they think the point of the evolution is? Yeah, you know, this I, this trajectory. I think it's I think it's subversive um, of a Christian worldview. I mean, it it, it you can use a vampire to to teach uh, you know to teach horror of what horror truly is, what evil really is. But when you romanticize it, you're you're actually making horror something that's good. And it's you know go to go back to a word that was used earlier, not the antichrist, but it's very antichrist in the way that it it's depicting what what evil is. Yeah, it's like promoting transhumanism as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it, it it is a link to that, and it's because it's vampires, and, and that has a long literary history and a, and a long cinematic history. Uh, you could see where that's sort of a an easy entry point, or, or, or not an entry point, but an easy um, an easy thing to take for a filmmaker today and piggyback certain ideas onto it, you know, and, and have a successful film. You know, it doesn't all have to be uh, technological, but since this is sort of an old, you know, an old kind of time honored uh, series of tropes here, you know, what, why not, you know, take that idea and uh, use that, you know, even for a modern audience. Well, let's, let's jump into the, the uh, two ghost articles. And I, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw this out. Both of the articles had something to say about sensing supernatural presences and there being or not being an electromagnetic cause or electromagnetic explanation. (laughs) So I'd kind of like to, to know what you thought about each article, because in my reading of them, I don't want to say they were oppositional in that respect, but they weren't on the same page. Let's put it that way. So uh, again, for our listeners, what these two articles tried to do, and again, they were typical academic journal articles. Um, Here's, we went to these haunted places. We interviewed people, you know, who said they saw this, that, or the other thing. Uh, We took lots of notes, you know, what happened and, you know, what did, what people experienced either inside or outside, which room and what kind of experiences they had. And then they set up an experiment where they would have people, you know, who thought that they were, 
somehow gifted in sensing ghosts. And then they had a control group of skeptics and they had them go through the houses or go to certain locations, you know, with the, the ones in, in the UK and just record, take notes of, did you feel anything? Did you experience anything? Did you sense this, that, or the other thing? And then they just sort of, you know, compiled the data. And then and some of the, the, the groups were, were pretty large. You had several hundred people in one of them. And then the other study, you know, they had, again, more, you know, people who volunteered to come forth and said, yeah, I'm good at this, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so what did we think about the method and the results of can people, are there people, you know, can they sense supernatural presences is one question. And is there a viable alternative explanation to the results or not? Those are the two questions we put on the table. So what do we, what did you think about the experiments here? Jerry's still out telling one way or the other. I did think it was interesting in the Maher article um, that the controls, the three men who were skeptically disposed towards sensing ghosts, um, two of them were, um, what does it say? They were members of an international magical society devoted to the pursuit of arcane truths through magical rituals. (laughs) And then one guy was just like, a computer guy who was skeptical of everything. But it seems like, could you not find like three atheists or like three (laughs) not at all predisposed to the supernatural? You had to have two guys whose whole goal is to like do magical rituals (laughs) and they're the skeptics. I thought that was really bizarre. (laughs) I did too. Yeah. Yeah. The the term there that throws you is, is the, the whole well, not the term, but the whole idea of ritual. Mm-hmm. Because if if they're just stage magicians, well, then I could see them picking those guys because like they would know right? how to fake something, yeah. you know. But yeah, they, that that did throw me a little bit too. Because it says they were interested in the pursuit of arcane truths through <sighs> magical rituals. That seems really occultic to me. Doesn't sound like a it's stage magician. It's mm-hmm. Very, it was very weird choice in my opinion for for the control group. Yeah, something that was weird about the the investigation of the General Wayne in General Wayne in mm-hmm. the Mahler article is that the study happened in 1988, but the article didn't come out till 2000. I, yeah, I found that bizarre. I actually went on. I, I looked up some pictures. I was kind of curious what this place looked like, and and uncovered that there was. I guess it was a subsequent owner, the owner to this subsequent to this investigation. Was, there were two owners and one of them ended up murdering the other in the rest, in the, in the end. And it actually went out of business. He's in jail now. And, and now, now it's actually a Jew. I think it's like a Jewish cultural center or something, but I don't know. I just felt it was weird that the article took, was released after this murder trial. <laughs> Yeah, because I don't think that this was from the Journal of Parapsychology. And while it's common to take a year or two to get something, you know, published, you know, through through the, the whole peer review process, I have to think there's not a truckload of articles that are waiting 
for publication in this particular journal. You know, it, I mean, there's enough material, enough work being done to have the journal, but the eight-year thing that that is kind of strange. Mm-hmm. I just I don't see a good reason, you know, for that. Um, you know, who who knows? You know what what they were thinking. The uh, let me read from that article the uh, part of the conclusion. The sensitives believe themselves capable of sensing ghosts, and that is what they attempted to do. Again, this this one group of, of individuals. Tests of magnetic field magnitudes at target and control locations provided no evidence to suggest that strong magnetic fields or sudden changes in field magnitudes had caused witnesses or sensitives to mistakenly interpret certain locations as sites of ghostly activity. Yet other physical tests, such as those using infrared photography, Polaroid photography, video recording, audio taping, were unsuccessful and produced no conspicuous anomalies that might support the premise of a ghost. And here's here's this last sentence. And the possibility that the sensitive's positive scores reflect only PSI test ability rather than sensitivity to, to ghosts cannot be experimentally addressed and therefore cannot be discounted. Now, what what they did there were again these these sensitives, and one in particular uh, had a, a a pretty good score of saying that he or she i think they were i don 't know if they were all women or not, but um, felt something or sensed something very close to you know the either either pretty much precise hits or or or, or close by in certain rooms and at certain locations in certain rooms where uh you know the, the the stories about the place uh often put some sort of ghostly activity so th- this one person had a particular particularly high kind of hit rate in that and then you know this they they tried these other means and they basically said well there's no evidence to to suggest that she wasn't like in there sensing some sort of physical you know material you know magnetic kind of thing. And so they, they leave the door open to, well, maybe she really did sense something, but then they qualify it by saying, oh, well, maybe she just has PSI ability and it's not ghosts. What, what does that mean? Well, it, I, I to me, it, it just, it felt like butt covering <laughs> in the article because it's like, it's not high enough to say that she can really do this. But since we can't, say oh it's just geomagnetic whatever you know kind of like the 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 episode we did with you know the, the the psychic animals thing where they're looking for a physical uh reason why the dog you know behaved a certain way well since we can't really establish there's a physical reason that this person would have given us the responses she gave you know we can't say it's b we don't really it's not high enough to say it's a but maybe you know she just has some other psychic ability, and it's like, well, really, you know, you, you, it, it almost felt like they were trying to salvage an inconsistent or a kind of a, a non-conclusive outcome. They were they were trying to save it, you know, a little bit by, oh, maybe it's something else that 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 we haven't we yeah. can't rule out here. So it felt like a little bit of butt covering to me. But again, that re- that was just me. It reminded me of the one of the opening scenes in Ghostbusters where uh, Dr. Venkman is conducting his 
uh, Rainer card test <laughs> yeah. with some 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 rather rather half thought methodology. I think I, I think in, in some cases that could that could be said of this article. Yeah, I thought that it actually just showed this a huge flaw in how this entire thing was conducted because ultimately no matter what the outcome was it was set up so that if these sensitives or psychic mediums were going to come into the place and make a claim about perceiving something then we were not going to confirm or deny it so almost it was like well what was the point (laughs) of even bringing them in because the physical quote evidence all kind of turned out to be in question like for example there was one where there was interesting streaks of light in the camera but then upon further analysis it looked like someone had probably opened up and exposed the film and sure enough you know a few paragraphs previous to that you hear about somebody who was taking pictures and then they came running out of the area where they were supposed to be to go get some more film so obviously that is probably what happened you know, so the physical parts, uh, attempts at gathering evidence all seem to be pretty debunkable. But then it's like, well, what was even the point of the sensitives in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because they were pretty accurate with where there were, had been alleged sightings or feelings from people over the centuries, I think, weren't they? I mean, so it was like, yeah, they're accurate. But, you know, maybe they're just psychic. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's right. why you brought them in. But at the same time, psychic. you know, if so... As somebody who took business in college, I had to take some statistics courses. And, you know, there's this idea of a sample size that you need a minimum sample size in order for it to have any kind of meaning at all. And when I read this, I I kind of felt the same way even when we did the crop circles thing. And, And that came out a little bit more, I think, in our discussion. But when you have like three people and this is supposed to be your sample size, I mean, it might work in a journal of parapsychology, but it would be laughed out of the room if it was a statistics journal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be different if you had like a hundred people and 90 exactly. had a, had it, a, it has to be meaningful. Yeah. And you, just to have three random people walking in and, and even the numbers were all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. 2% for one person and 60% for another. I mean, that's just not really telling you much of anything. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, go go ahead. No, it was fun to read. I mean, the author did a great job setting it up and sort of trying to prime us, (laughs) only to sort of undo all the priming. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to come up a lot. (laughs) Because there was also this interesting, like, sort of, I guess I found this one to be a little bit confusing, honestly, because... I hope I'm not getting the two articles mixed up, but I think it was the same one where it sort of seems like it started out that there was this attempt to differentiate between regular ghost activity and poltergeist activity. But then it seems like that didn't really carry through, but then they kind of tried to bring it up again in the summation, but it was lost on me. (laughs) No, I'm with, I'm with you. I don't, I, to me, that's like a distinction without a difference. You know, I, I don't know what the the point was. And even with the back to the um, yeah the the I'm trying to remember the Wayne the the Wayne Inn. The, what, what what was the name of it again? General Wayne Inn. General yeah. Wayne Inn. Yeah, losing the word general there. You know, it, it would be also significant if the place had like a hundred rooms, 
Mm-hmm. And and you all yeah exactly you know and 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 the, and the reported activity of centuries gone by or whatever um, only like happened in three of them. And it, so if you had like a huge number of rooms and a, a sort of a, a really narrow opportunity for hits, and then you had a, a lot of people, you know, come come up with the same thing. To me, that would be really significant. Um, so the, the numbers are a little bit odd. I mean, I, and again, for the sake of our listeners, I, I'm not one, and I don't think any of us would, would be in the boat where we just don't believe that ghost stories can ever be real. I mean, I, I'm not in that boat. I, I actually know people in, 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 in a town uh, the, where I first I had my first teaching job where th- this was a guy in church. He was a realtor, uh, bought this you know old house in town. It was a really nice house. But there was one particular room that, that they just learned you don't go in there. <laughs> and it and it wasn't a violent thing. It wasn't a threatening thing. But there was one particular room in the house that they couldn't do anything with. It, it was always colder than every other room. You couldn't put furniture in it. The furniture would get moved around or overturned. You couldn't put wallpaper on the thing. It would get shredded. And it's like, okay, it's just not our room. We're, we're done with that. And as long as we don't have any other trouble, we're fine. Uh, so again, these are just people that I knew. I mean, you know, people in church had no, they, they didn't go around advertising and selling tickets to this room. You know, it, it just, it's just something that was part of their house, like a leaky faucet or something. It's like, we don't use that room because somebody else lives there, you know, that, that sort of thing. So it just kind of was what it was uh, to them. So I, I'm not closing the door on them, but I, I agree. I wasn't real satisfied with this article and the other article actually had, you know, in, in the abstract, let me just read the, the conclusion to the, to the second one. This is the one in the UK. Uh, results revealed significantly more reports of unusual experiences in areas that had a reputation for being haunted. So again, lots of hits. This effect was not related to participants prior knowledge about the reputation of these areas. You know, they, they tried to find people who didn't know anything about the place. However, the location of participants experiences correlated significantly with various environmental factors, including, for example, the variance of local magnetic fields and lighting levels. You know, you, you do something like that and, and you get that result, you know, it, didn't, it, it couldn't really prove anything. Mm-hmm. So to, to me, these, th- this was in the uh, – trying to remember the source here. Uh, let's see. Go back to my, my initial notes here. That one was from the British Journal of Psychology. Okay, so that wasn't you know, a, a parapsychology journal. This was sort of a more mainstream uh, academic journal. Uh, and again, they, they got a lot of hits, but they, in this case, they thought, well, there really are, there could be at least, they don't know, they wouldn't say that there are, but there could be at least environmental factors. So it just sort of canceled out for other reasons, the apparently interesting results that they got. Yeah, that was, in a way, that was kind of like the in the crop circle, the idea that well, it must be microwave radiation. I mean, in this case, they actually found the magnetic fields were had variances, which I thought was really interesting. 
Yeah, but, in and of itself, it is. Yeah, but I wanted I wanted more. I mean, so let's go someplace. Let's make let's it's very you know let's create microwave variances and let's send people through that place and mm-hmm. see if they think it's haunted. That would to me would would be really compelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody else find have something interesting in this one or a point of dissatisfaction or satisfaction? Well, I, I think one of, and, and I, I don't want to be cliche about it, but I think one of the one of the underlying things that these kinds of studies prove is is you know methodological considerations aside, you know the question that recurs to me when I read this kind of literature is how do we go about quantifying these sorts of phenomena? Mm-hmm. What What would you suggest? Let's say that you could. You could alter either of these. I mean, we've already talked about the one. Hey, it'd be nice to have more rooms. It'd be nice to have more people. I mean, any other suggestions that you'd like to see? Because one of the goals that we have, you know, for this podcast is eventually when we go through kind of a first pass on a number of, of topics, we want to go back and contact some of the the authors of these studies and revisit, you know, the topic. And, you know, it, it'd be nice, again, for me, taking notes here, that um, to ask them, well, why didn't, why did you do this and not that, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So anybody have other suggestions? What would you like, would have liked to have seen them done, you know, to, to kind of make it more satisfying for you? One thing about this art, this Wiseman article that it mentions is that during, if I'm reading it correctly, during the actual experiments, the place was, lit up and full of tourists so i don't know you know i guess it kind of tries to say that whether people actually saw things or whatever or they felt dizziness headache sickness short of breath or some sort of a presence and intense emotional feelings and then they were they had to score it as to whether it was a ghost definitely yes probably yes maybe maybe not (laughs) whatever the categories were um I don't know how you heard if the place is full of people, mm. you know, mm-hmm. you saw something, well, the place is full of people, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It was difficult for me to understand how a proper investigation or, or experiment could have taken place with that. kind. I mean, it specifically says it was loud. There was noise. It was completely lit up and there was people everywhere. That one, that part really confused me. Yeah, the, the general went in. They did it after hours in the middle of the night. Which, by the way, that would creep me out. I'd, I'd get a hit in every room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, That's like true. It's the opposite. House on Haunted Hill. That movie, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going to spend the night in a haunted house. It's like, oh. <laughs> so I think it would be cool if they could isolate. It is too in the the one in the UK. One of them was, um, like in a, I think a big palace or something. And it'd be cool if they could isolate it after hours a little bit and then send the people through. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be intentionally made to be spooky. Like, you know, these ghost hunting shows where it's like we have to turn all the lights off and have it completely black and you can only see things through infrared cameras, you know, (laughs) but, but at least maybe not during a time where there's just a ton of people around making noise with, you know, everything illuminated. And it just seems like that would always interfere with trying to perceive something unusual. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'd like to see these them try something where they're not focused on uh, the paranormal, where they tell the subjects they're studying something else. So they don't go in there already biased or have a preconceived notion or looking for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that would even happen if you were a sensitive. Like, let's imagine if we were all, quote unquote, sensitives and we all get invited to go you know, through this house, we're not told anything about the house or its history or whatever, but, you know, we, we, we all know we've been asked, Hey, do you think you have a special skill in detecting ghosts? You know, like you can just sense them. And so we all kind of know why we're there. Well, if it's me, I mean, I I would be, I'd feel kind of, I'd feel a little bit like an idiot if we come back out the place and I'm the only one that says, Nope, didn't feel anything Mm -hmm. because then, then it's like, well, you're just no good. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's gotta be some, I I think there's a a bit of a, you know, maybe a peer pressure element here that how many people would really do that and just honestly say, I didn't feel a thing. Yeah. All of you others are reporting this. I I guess I just stink at this or I lost the gift or I had a bad, you know, you'd, you'd kind of feel at least a little bit um, nudged towards saying something. Nobody wants to be the only non, you know, experiencing psychic in the room. (laughs) The only incompetent psychic in the room. (laughs) So I think there's some of that too. Going back to that EVP article when they were trying to pick up voices of ghosts in a university room. Here they're going to a haunted house. But what if, I mean, what's to say that these intelligent ghosts, right? The the theory is that the entities are intelligent. What's to say that they're going to be in the room at the same time as the sensitive? I mean, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Don't ghosts move around. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. These alleged sightings have taken place over decades or centuries in some cases. Are there like specific times when they show up? Um, according to the, you know, the past records. And is that relevant to the, to how you do an experiment? Yeah. Yeah. You, I know what you're getting at, you know, that boy, wouldn't it be nice to have, a, have more data and have that data be at least ostensibly uh, on the surface, a little more relevant, you know, because you, you, you know, you bring these other factors and that might make your experiment a little more intelligent, you know, a little more focused or something. I'm, I'm trying not to be pejorative here, but yeah, that might matter. You would think it would it would matter if it has a long history. Um, that might be something you'd want to incorporate into doing whatever it is you're trying to do here. Well, and I, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say I just have general questions about ghosts. And again, I'm I'm not one of these that that would say oh, there's no such thing as ghosts. You know, again, because I know people you know who have no reason to lie to me, uh, including relatives and whatnot that. I take their experience at at face value. And so, you know, even even aside from the the scriptural warrant to believe that there are such things as as ghosts, uh, I do have questions about studies like these and sort of the modern way ghosts are hunted, if you want to put it that way. Why would – why should we expect the activity, the spectral activity to not only show up in the same room? But the same part of a room. I mean, like, can't are they just chained there? Like, there's mm-hmm. some kind of ghost glue that whenever they show up, it has to be here. You know, I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. If if you're a disembodied spirit and you're real and you're not apparently subject to the normal laws of, you know, physics or whatever, why can't you just go where you want? 
Haven't or, these or, seen people? Haven't these people read Charles Dickens? You know, the ghosts they wander. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, and even even if you're talking about a mischievous one, oh, for the last fifty years I've been showing up in in the bedroom. Uh, this time I'm going to show up in the bathroom. You know, just <laughs> yeah. just yeah. to throw them a curveball. You know, they're just things that that to me seem kind of transparent about kind of the the assumptions that are brought to the whole enterprise that that. Um, make me look at it and, and think, well, you know, boy, I, this just doesn't seem like something that, that's going to really pan out well, uh, that, that's going to really produce any, any safe result. And don't uh, you think it would be interesting if some of these experiments were carried out not in like the creepy old historical inn or the creepy old UK palace? Like, wouldn't it be more interesting? I think this would be a really interesting experiment. Take a bunch of people who claim to be sensitives and then just take two random residential houses that nobody's ever heard of. It just so happens that one claims to have paranormal activity and one is just like not it's just a house that's there and you send some of the sensitives into one and some of the sensitives into the other and you don't tell them which is which and then just see what the results of that are i think it would be less like of a i mean if you're going into an ancient palace or a old historical inn there's already this inherent creepiness about it i mean it is hard to imagine that people haven't heard some stories about these places that are notorious. And I don't know, that seems like priming too, you know, why not just put them into these places that nobody's ever heard of and not tell them if there's ghosts there or not and just see what they find. Yeah. We, we've done a number of these episodes now and the, and the priming thing just again, sort of bubbles to the surface mm-hmm. where I, I agree. I agree with, with what Natalie just said. It, it just seems that, there ought to be more focused attention to doing everything you can possibly do to avoid priming. And, and that's, that's difficult, but in, in some of the things we've read, I, I, I'm in agreement with, with, you know, others, you know, here that have said, you know, or, or just wondered about, well, why, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Because if we can sit here and after one reading and in, in, in a discussion, you know, an hour long discussion here, think, well, that just predisposed somebody to this or that. Why couldn't they have thought of that? It, it just doesn't seem on one level too hard to weed out the kinds of things that are occurring to us. But then on the other side, you know, to be fair, you know, can you really anticipate every way that someone might be primed? I don't know, but but somebody ought to be thinking about that. Again, that that's just that's just, you know, my take on it. I, but the priming thing just seems really you know, really important. A a lot of this, it's hard not to chalk it up to priming. I mean, let's, I'll just be honest. You know, I I don't, again, I'm not predisposed to saying that's all it ever is. I don't believe that either. Some of these scenarios, the the small group of us can look at it and say, well, I would have thought that if this was the, you know, we can't be alone there. I mean, that other people, we're, we're just, we're just people, we're normal. And so we're, we're going to be subject to priming. And if we can, sort of be subject to it. Well, why didn't they think of that ahead of time? Yeah, I, I guess thinking about the the one in Scotland, I think it was Scotland, where they went to this giant arches, uh, some giant bridge mm-hmm. with these giant arches that was supposed to be haunted. And you have hundreds of people milling about. And then and there's like certain spots that are supposed to be where the, the ghosts live, I guess. And sure enough, the test subjects picked those spots. But if you're in a like a tour 
Mm-hmm. And if you heard the person next to you, oh, do you feel that? Do you feel that? Oh, I feel creepy. I mean, could you, if you just overhear that, you're going to say, oh, yeah, now that you mention it, I feel creepy too. <clears throat> or, yeah. Well, of course you do. I mean, because everyone else in the area is talking about that too. You, you know what I mean? That, that's so I talk. It's, it seems way obvious that no wonder they had so many hits. Everyone's going to be it's that herd mentality kind of if you're in a in a in a group. Yeah, and anybody who's ever like heard a ghost story, <laughs> you know, you know that these ancient structures, ancient buildings, historical, you know, edifices, this is where ghosts hang out. And so you're going to go into them and you're going to feel creepy creepy when you <laughs> when you go in there, right? I mean, that's just kind of like natural and then that's going to make you have these these weird feelings that are sort of vaguely classified as like an uneasiness you know um Mm -hmm. that of course you're going to feel that way because you've heard a ghost story before you know and it took place in a place like this that's why i think it would be so much more interesting if it was just like these little residential houses that don't have anything particularly overtly creepy about them that would just be so interesting to me Mm-hmm. Well, maybe, I mean, we're going to, we're going to at some point be coming back to the ghost topic because there's a lot of things like, you know, the, the orb photographs and, and whatnot. There's a lot to mine here. Uh, maybe we'll come across that, something like that, that would be you know real interesting for a future episode, but just want to thank, we, we should wrap it up. Uh, we're a, a little long on this one, but we covered, you know, two things and Hey, it's a Halloween episode. So, you know, <laughs> just deal with it. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, we want to thank Judd, uh, for being with us. And of course, everybody who, who, uh, was able to participate, uh, just thanks for, for doing that again. Next time, uh, I'm going to propose, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I've, I've, you know, kind of gone with the flow here a couple of times, but in the, in the readings I've collected, the, the thing I'd like to do next time is sleep paralysis. All right. Yeah. Okay. And I think, I think this one, we might have some disagreement between us. I, I don't know that, you know, for sure, but I'm, you know, I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, say kind of what, what my thinking is on this, but I know that among Christians, especially who have taken a look at this topic, and I have to imagine the same kind of division is going to be, present in the wider community there are some who you know would attribute this to something supernatural others won't and then you know still others are going to have some kind of a mix but um that's what i expect i expect people to actually fall in different places next time but we'll see you know don't prime us that happens no i won't prime you (laughs) that's why i'm trying not to not to predispose where i'm at here but um and and who knows i mean i might read one of these that I'll, i'll send to you guys and and something might just you know, really flip a switch with me and, and move me in a different direction. But I think it's a really fascinating uh, topic. I, I just know people who are into Christians, again, paranormal research that have really taken strong stands on one side or the other uh, of this. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know, where, where we're going to fall out. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Trey, do we have a wrap? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm just going to go get okay. my ghost vampire costume on to go trick or treating. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, I'll, I'll wear my Packers uniform or something. <laughs> oh, that's really scary. Yeah. 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 Well, they're not too scary right now. That would just make people laugh. I know it's just terrible. <laughs> what can you say? Well, thanks everybody for being with us. Thanks, yeah, Rose. That was really yep. interesting. Yep. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Later. Bye, bye.